Well, if you're a guest with us today, we're delighted that you're here and worshiping with us. If you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're delighted that you're worshiping with us as well. And we're in a series called A.D., A New Beginning, and we're going through the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. And this morning, we're in Acts chapter 8, and we're exploring this idea of going where God leads. Now, I know the technology's been out for a while, but I am still just absolutely fascinated with this whole concept of GPS, this global positioning system where, where a, a, an electronic device can tell you exactly where you are or exactly where you're supposed to end up by sending signals from here that bounce off of a satellite that is orbiting the earth. Just baffles me. I don't know if any of the rest of you are, are amazed as much as, as I am, but I just find that incredibly fascinating. But I don't trust it. <laughs> even, even with a trustworthy name like a TomTom, -tom, I still don't trust it. <laughs> And I'll tell you why. Uh, a couple of years ago, Elsie and I were uh, on vacation. We were kind of driving through the upper peninsula of Michigan, and toward evening time, we were wanting to get back to the, to the Mackinac Bridge, and we were following the GPS, and it kept taking us down more and more country roads. Finally, it was going to have us turn down this gravel road into this heavily pine-treed forest and down around this bend. I just knew that Hannibal Lecter or Freddy Krueger was down around that bend ready to take our lives turned off the GPS, pulled out an old-fashioned map, and got right back to the bridge where we needed to be. You see, there's sometimes GPS just doesn't quite get you where you need to be. And something else about GPS, it doesn't always know the road conditions. One of our couples from the church was spending a day in the back roads of southern Indiana. They were coming home after dark, and their GPS was taking them through these country roads that were not well marked. They were not well striped. It was dark, and, and there were no warning signs. There had been a lot of rain, and it took them down a road that was flooded. And before they figured out it was flooded, their car was into the water, and they couldn't get it stopped fast enough. Now, they both got out of the car and to safety, but the car was lost. You see, GPS may know where the road is, it just doesn't know the condition of the road. I'm reluctant to follow GPS. I'm not reluctant to follow God. His directions are a lot different. Where He leads, we ought to go. Now, it's true, we know where our ultimate destination is. It's called heaven. We just don't know how God's going to get us there. He knows the coordinates. He knows where He's taking us. But we don't know where He's going to get us there and how He's going to get us there. But there is this element of trust because God has never failed yet. And the best thing is that when God leads, He goes before you. I've learned over the years that the best and the safest place to be is where God is leading you to be. When we come to the eighth chapter of Acts, we meet a new character by the name of Philip. Now, Philip, like Stephen, was one of the original seven deacons of the early church, and God uses Philip in a tremendous way. God leads Philip out of Jerusalem into some new uncharted territory. I don't think Philip had any idea where God was going to lead him, but God was leading, and he was following. For all of the terror that the persecution of the early church produced, all of the negatives, all the awfulness that it produced, the persecution did one thing that was, well, at least turned into a positive for the church, and that is it got the message of the gospel out of Jerusalem. What the wind does to the white puffy ball of a dandelion blossom, persecution did for the church. It spread like on the wind 
to villages and towns and countries and regions outside of Jerusalem, accomplishing exactly what Jesus said would happen in Acts 1-8 before he ascended to the Father. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It started with the persecution of the church. Victor Hugo wrote, he said, there is one thing stronger than all the armies of the world, and that is an idea whose time has come. The message of the gospel was exactly that, an idea whose time had come. Now, it's more than an idea. It is an ideology. It is a theology. It is a way of life. It is a world of you. It is the life-transforming message of eternity, and it needed to get beyond the borders of Jerusalem. So, at God's leading, Philip makes his way to Samaria. <laughs> I wonder if Philip asked God any questions with regard to that, like, really, God? Samaria? Of all places you could send me? Samaria? Because you got to remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. It was an intense rivalry. It would, it would be sort of like the Hatfields inviting the McCoys to a birthday party and expecting them to bring a gift. It, it would be like asking IU President McRobbie to wear black and gold and cheer for Purdue whenever the Boilermakers play the Hoosiers. It was an intenseness. I, I mean, no Jew would have Samaria on his must-visit vacation list. It would be completely the opposite. But God sends Philip to Samaria, way out of his comfort zone. If you're following God, you need to know sometimes it'll take you out of your comfort zone. Sometimes there'll be things that aren't pleasant serving God. Sometimes he'll take you to places that, that you may feel really awkward. And sometimes he'll hook you up with people that you just might not really enjoy. Where would it be that God would lead you out of your comfort zone? Who do you know that you would least like to talk to about Jesus Christ? Is it the cranky neighbor? Is it someplace on the other side of town, you don't want to cross those tracks into that part of the community? Or is it someplace around the world that makes you feel really uncomfortable that you would say, God, don't ever take me there? Following God, when He leads and we go, it's the best place you can be. It's not always the easiest place. It's not always the most comfortable place, but it is the best place. And Philip faithfully preached God's Word. Can I tell you this? That's all, that's all he ever asks us to do, is to tell his story that has become our story. You and I are just seed planters. We are not harvesters. God is the harvester. We're just responsible for planting the seed. And when we come to the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, we find two unique encounters that Philip has with, with two different people, unexpected people, people that were out of his comfort zone, and yet they tell a great story and provide some great lessons for us. One is a magician. The other is a treasurer in the court of royalty. So, we're going to take a look at the magician first. His name is Simon the sorcerer, who, by the way, had a great following in Samaria. But when Philip arrived and started preaching and doing miraculous signs, Simon, along with the rest of the people, got caught up in the message. He believed, the Bible says, and he was baptized, the Bible said, 
And then we read this, Acts chapter 8, verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit, now, he, you know, this is the magician in him, all right? He's seeing this no longer as some kind of sleight of hand. He's seeing this as a miraculous gift. And when he sees that the apostles lay their hands on these people and they receive the miraculous abilities of the Holy Spirit, he says, now that is amazing. I want that. Not the miraculous gift of the Spirit, but the ability to pass on the miraculous ability of the Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter rebukes him greatly, says, may your money perish with you, Simon. That's not what this is about. And Simon asked for prayers on his behalf. Now, that, now there's a big question that we got to answer here with regard to the Holy Spirit, because this gets really confusing because when the church begins, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people make their decision to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And when they say, Peter, what shall we do? Peter answers in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it would seem that the pattern is you become a Christian, and the Holy Spirit comes and lead, it takes up residence in your life. So what is this? These people believed they'd been baptized, they had accepted Jesus as their Savior, and then Peter and John have to come from Jerusalem, put their hands on these people so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit as, as negative about the Samaritans as the Jews were? I mean, what is this? Well, I'll tell you what I think. There are a lot of theories out there. We don't have time to explore all the theories, so let me tell you what I think. I might be wrong, but this is what I believe is the best explanation. And, and, and here's what I believe. I believe that when we become a Christian, we all receive the indwelling presence of the Spirit. That's God's promise. The Holy Spirit is our down payment on our salvation. But in the early church, and the church in Jerusalem had the outpouring of the Spirit. That is, they did miraculous things. The apostles did miraculous things. Many of the people in the early church, Philip did miraculous things because the Spirit had come upon them in a powerful, miraculous way. But the only people who could pass on that ability were the apostles. Philip couldn't do it. He had to have Peter and John come up from Jerusalem. And I think this was critically important. Because if, if the Holy Spirit had been miraculously used and using the Christians of Jerusalem, but he did not miraculously make himself known to the Samaritans, there would have been an even greater divide in the body of Christ. There was already this hatred between the two groups. And if the Jerusalem Jews had the miraculous gifts and the Samaritan Christians did not, then the polarization would have been stronger. They both are equal in the body of Christ. And so I believe this was necessary for the work to go on. If the indwelling presence of the Spirit was passed on by the apostles, none of us would have the Holy Spirit because the apostles have been long gone. So this was, I believe, God's work for the future. 
Now, some historians and theologians also think that Simon really didn't become a Christian. They, I, they, they think that he really wasn't believed, but it says he believed their message and he was baptized. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that when he became a follower of Christ, he didn't become somebody perfect immediately. He was genuinely repentant when Peter pointed out his error. He wanted them to pray for him. He just, he, his behavior just didn't change immediately. Now, I think this is important for us to remember. Just because someone recognizes his or her brokenness through sin and embraces the message of forgiveness of Jesus Christ and becomes a Christian, it doesn't mean they become perfect immediately. As a matter of fact, we never become perfect. Let me see the hands of you in the, in, in the room this morning who think you are perfect. Good, no hands went up. Because none of us are. Now, if I'd asked, does your spouse think he or she is perfect, there would have been some hands that went up. But you and I know that we are not perfect people. We never become perfect. And, and just because we start a journey with Jesus Christ doesn't mean we immediately become Christian in our behavior. That is a lifelong process. I think Simon said, oops, I stepped over the line. Will you pray for me? Because I believe that he really believed. Now, did he make some assumptions? Oh, yeah, he sure did. Was there some misunderstanding in his concept? Absolutely. Was he in danger of abusing the grace of Christ because of what he asked? Sure he was. Did Peter set him straight? <laughs> yeah, Peter set him straight. He said, may you perish with your money, Simon. That's pretty straight. But Simon needed to be set straight. Here's something you and I need to understand about life in the body of Christ. We all start at different places, and we all grow to a different place. We're continually growing throughout our lives, and there are times when we need to be set straight, and that ought to be a privilege in the body of Christ. When you see somebody whose morality or their character is in contrast, out of sync with what Jesus Christ has asked of us, then we ought to be able to approach that person and encourage them to make some changes. I'm not talking about opinions. I'm talking about morality and character. If our morality is such that we are jeopardizing our relationship with Jesus Christ or we're jeopardizing our relationship with the community, the body of Christ, the church, or if our reputation is on the line in the community, somebody needs to come alongside of us and help us realize the, the error of our ways. It's not intended to pass judgment. It's intended to help us. That's what the body is about. And if I get out of line morally or with my integrity, I expect you to call me on it because I need your help and I need your accountability. And if you get out of line, I expect the privilege of being able to help you too because we're in this together. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things I think is so important about life groups. It is a built-in accountability group that helps you grow in Christ so that your character and your morality becomes what it ought to be, a reflection of Jesus Christ. It may not always be comfortable, but it is always right. So, we're into the book of Acts. It seems like there is this great revival going on in the land of Samaria. And guess what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit says, Philip, I've got another job for you to do. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, probably a road that may, was more deserted. It, you know, I'm not sure it was completely desert region, but that it was more deserted, not a lot of traffic. 
that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So, he started out. Now, I just love Philip in this passage here. I would have had scores of questions. I haven't been in Samaria very long. What's, what's wrong? What did I do wrong? God, why are you sending me somewhere else? Why do I have to leave? How far south do I have to go? What's in that desert region? Who am I going to meet? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to talk to? What am I supposed to say? Did you make reservations at a bed and breakfast along the way? Because I can't get there all in one day, Lord. All these questions. It, it just says, so he started out. The Spirit says, Philip, got someplace else for you to go? Philip said, okay, I'm on my way. I, don't you love this guy? He's just walking wherever God, where God is leading, he is following. Now, from Samaria to Jerusalem was about 35 miles. And so, if you, if you could walk 10 to 15 miles a day, you couldn't make it all in one day. You'd have to stop a little bit along the way. And we don't know how far south he was going, you know, south of Jerusalem. That was just from Samaria to Jerusalem. And so, this probably was a four, maybe even a five-day journey. But lo and behold, just at the time that Philip arrives on that desert road, there is a chariot with an Ethiopian in it, and it seems like this is exactly where Philip's supposed to be. God's timing is perfect. Let's read it. Acts chapter 8, verse 27. And on his way, Philip he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot. By the way, the word chariot here is not one of those racing kind of chariots that we often think of. This is more of a cart, a small wagon. It was designed to accomplish about 15 miles a day. It would have been going fairly slowly. The Ethiopian was not driving it. Somebody else was driving it and he was reading here, okay? The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. See, it's not going too fast. Philip ran up to it. And he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Well, how can I? He asked, unless somebody explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this, this passage of Scripture from Isaiah now. And it's a passage about Jesus. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began, I love this, Philip began at that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Can I, can I suggest that Philip is out of his comfort zone again? This guy is of royal position. As far as we know, Philip was just an ordinary guy from the Jerusalem area. This guy works with a queen. He's a worshiper of God, been in Jerusalem for that very purpose. But he's a foreigner. He's a man of a different race and color. He's hard to understand because he has an accent. He may be a proselyte Jew, but he's not a native-born Jew like Philip. This would not have been, this was not where Philip would have been comfortable going. But the Spirit is taking them there. God is leading, and Philip is going, and he gets to the chariot, and Philip starts with this verse and preaches unto him, Jesus. Do you realize, folks, that you could start anywhere in the Bible and preach Jesus because the whole Word of God, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, it all points us to Jesus. You could start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and easily preach Jesus because He's there. So, he took this passage and teaches 
him about Jesus. And then the Ethiopian uh, gets to this part in the, in the book of Acts, and, and we read this, all right, in, in verses 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip says, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took away Philip, and the eunuch did not see him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. I so appreciate the simple faith, trust, and obedience of this Ethiopian. Somewhere in this sermon, when, when Philip is starting at Isaiah and preaching about Jesus, they covered the topic of baptism. There's no other explanation for this to occur. They're, they're traveling down the road. They come to some water, and the Ethiopian said, Whoa, Philip, whoa, here, there's water here. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, Well, you can if you believe. He said, Well, I do. And they went down into the water, and he was baptized. It is such a powerful moment here. Baptism, however, seems to be such a sticking point for so many people, and I have never understood why. It is such a glorious picture. You go down into the water, you're lowered beneath the surface, and you're raised up. It is as though you have told this pageant of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, the very thing, the very moment of history, the very event that brings us salvation, it, were it not for his death, we would have no forgiveness of sins. Were it not for his resurrection, we would have no hope in eternal life. And when you're baptized, you tell that story. What could be more glorious than telling that story? The way we act, you'd think Jesus had asked us to do something phenomenal, like he asked the rich young ruler, who Jesus said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now, that'd be hard, wouldn't it? What if Jesus said, give up everything, sell your house, your cars, everything you got, give it all away, and then follow me, and, and trust me, I'll take care of you. You say, oh, boy, I don't know, that's hard. Well, yeah, that's hard. He didn't ask you to do something hard. He just said, be baptized into my name so that you can proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection. It's easy to understand. It's easy to do. It's a simple act that tells the profound message of grace. And it's not something that we do as if it's meritorious. You know, like it's going to earn us points with God, that we're earning our relationship with Him. Rather, it is a picture of surrender, which is another great part of this coming to Christ uh, we surrender to Him. I cannot baptize myself. You cannot baptize yourself. You surrender to somebody else's control who puts you under the water because that's exactly what you do when you become a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. You surrender your life's control to Him. If it is so meaningful and so simple, why then is baptism so hard for us? Well, 2,000 years of church history, division, and splits haven't helped we have stirred up the water into a frothy confusion, I think. The theological questions that are raised today were not issues in the book of Acts. We don't read any of these questions. Sometimes we major in the minors. We strive to parse every nuance out of this whole concept of baptism. We ask questions like, is baptism really necessary for salvation? Or, at what moment, what exact moment is a person saved? Or, what if a person is stuck in the desert and there's no water for baptism? Or, should it be running water or still water? Can it be inside in a baptistry or does it have to be outside in a lake? 
And why did God choose such a strange act to convey such a profound truth? Folks, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, but, but it's not my role to say, God, that wasn't a good idea because I, I think it's a great idea. When you understand the picture, it's a tremendous idea. And maybe God chose something so simple just to see if we were willing to obey. Sometimes people say, well, if it was, if it was really challenging, I'd do it. Nothing challenging about that. Yeah, it's, it's just the simple act of following His marvelous command. For all our good intentions, we Christians have complicated the simple. We have obscured the obvious. Too often we focused on the wrong question. The guy that asked the right question was the Ethiopian. He said, here's water. Why can't I do it? That's the question that matters. Here's water. Why shouldn't you do it? No reason in the world if you believe. And if you believe, there's every reason why you should. Why did God make Philip leave a good ministry in Samaria and go down to this chariot? <laughs> well, I'm going to suggest something to you. What we learn in history is that it, the Ethiopian region became a far stronger Christian region than did Samaria. And it all started with this one man on his way back home and a willing preacher who said, you lead God and I'll follow. Notice what happened next. It said, the Spirit took Philip away. Now, I don't know if the Spirit literally whisked him off as if like he just vanishes in the air. I, I suspect it probably didn't happen quite that way. I suspect the, the Spirit just led Philip back up the road and the Ethiopian went down that road. The Ethiopian never saw him anymore after that. Spirit says, Philip, i got another preaching job for you to do. And Philip says, you lead, I'll go. But he went on his way rejoicing. Why? Because when you find a treasure that you've been hunting for, you, you, you rejoice. And when a spiritual treasure seeker finds the greatest treasure of all, there is great joy. And you say, what was the treasure? Oh, the what made the difference was the hope that he found. Suddenly, he is this hopeless man on his way back to Ethiopia. He finds Jesus Christ, and he becomes eternally hopeful. And what is the basis? And by the way, hope is indispensable for your life. You, you won't survive without hope. And you say, what is the basis of our hope? Ah, it was the same truth that the apostles were dying for. Peter wrote before he died to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The very message that was preached that caused the persecution of the church that spread the church throughout the world is our hope. And when you have that hope, you can go anywhere. You can handle any discomfort. You can go wherever God leads. I have not seen it, but I've been told that there is a painting on display in the British Museum of a woman sitting at a harp with every string broken except for one. And the title of the painting is called Hope. I love that message. 
when life is down to the last string, those who have hope can still make music. Wherever God leads, you follow. Take the gospel with you. Tell his story that has become your story. And the best place you can begin that journey is right there in the waters of baptism. When you come to that conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, start that journey and follow where he leads.